Up next is Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Pete's Ponderings is a selection of Pete's candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis, taken from his show, Afternoons. Listen to the live broadcast of Peter Williams' Afternoon Show at 1pm, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Two more political polls came out this week, both telling pretty much the same story. The Labor government is gone and Christopher Luxon will lead a national and act coalition after the 14th of October. The Guardian Essential poll has national and act together just over 45%. Labor, Greens and Te Pati Māori are on just 40. In the Taxpayers' Union Curia poll, national and act are on just under 48, while the coalition of the left combines for... 41.5. But here's the rub. New Zealand First is at 5.3 in the Guardian poll and 5.8 in the Taxpayers' Union survey. The trend has been up for Winston Peters and his party for a few weeks now, and two polls in two days say they're back, and barring uh, serious missteps, they will be back in the Parliament. But probably not in government or in Cabinet unless David Seymour has a complete change of heart. And that looks increasingly unlikely, considering the attack he's putting on Winston through big billboards in Auckland and Wellington. But have the pollsters or the commentators stopped to think about where Winston's surge in support might be anchored? Because, you see, I reckon it's from the freedom movement, the anti-mandate movement that is so sizable mainstream media disregards it at their peril. The protesters in Wellington last year haven't forgotten that not one current member of parliament came to talk with them during the occupation. For many in the protest and their families, there is deep cynicism, bordering on outright disgust at the attitude shown by MPs to the protesters last year. But they haven't forgotten who came among them. It was... Winston. He didn't stay long, but he was there. He made an impact. Now he's promising that if and when he gets back to Parliament, he will push for a full and proper inquiry into the COVID-19 response, including the impact of the vaccine on individuals. And that's where so much of Winston's support is coming from. And the huge surge for New Zealand First has ACT very worried, hence the billboards. Now, ACT could have had this vote for themselves. But Seymour's attitude at Parliament last year and his subsequent statements and behaviour have disillusioned many of those mandated out of a job or who are injured, possibly because of the coercion that was put on them to be jabbed. Winston is hoovering up this support, and that's why the Democracy NZ movement looks like it's out the back door. But the question now is, if New Zealand First are back, will they be in any position to push their case on behalf of this anti-mandate movement. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Well, the country's farmers are grumpy. They have good reason to be. They're losing money. Costs are going up. Returns for their produce are getting lower. Their confidence is down and they're sick of the paperwork and the compliance forced on them by the government with the threat of more to come. Yesterday, the Federated Farmers Survey showed 80% say economic conditions are bad, the highest number recorded since the survey started seven years ago. 
Only 2% of respondents said they were currently making a profit 2%, and 11% said they expected to spend less money in the next year. The number one concern was debt and interest rates, while the main priority for the government to address for them was the economy and the business environment, followed by climate change policy and the emissions trading scheme. Now, I do a weekly radio show for Groundswell, and the people I talk to week after week are frustrated as hell about the potential for this methane tax. They've been actively campaigning against it, pointing out that even the IPCC admits now it has overstated the impact of methane on the climate by as much as 400%. Then there are the farm plans and the National Freshwater Policy Statement, which makes farming a more and more difficult industry to meet government compliance targets. The worst thing about this survey is that it was taken before Fonterra's announcement last Friday about the massive drop in milk prices of a dollar per kilogram of milk solids. And that's expected to take about $5 billion out of the New Zealand economy in the next year. New Zealand is a food-producing country. The export of that food to the world is the backbone of this country's economy and has been for 150 years. But this government and its bureaucracy seem to be doing as much as they can to make life difficult for farmers. Whether or not a change on the Treasury benches will make any real difference in the short term is a moot point, but the promises of both National and Act to reduce regulations is a most attractive proposition to the men and women of the land. When the rural economy thrives, so does the rest of the country. And at the moment, it is most definitely not. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio slash members and join now. Here's a question for you. Is it time to think seriously about the concept of public-private partnerships to build some big health infrastructure? The Labour New Zealand First Coalition banned the concept for hospitals, schools and prisons in 2018, essentially, of course, for ideological reasons. Jacinda Ardern and Winston Peters are opposed to big swathes of foreign direct investment into this country. So said that if and when new projects for government services were required, they would pay for them. But that was then, this is now. The country is in a recession and the overseas borrowing is close to being maxed out. Yes, the credit rating is still good, but the more the government borrows, the more it pays in interest each year. And already the annual interest bill is higher than the entire education budget. The most expensive bill in the health sector ever. It's going on right now, the new Dunedin Hospital. Now, the current price tag is $1.5 billion. It will almost certainly blow out way beyond that by the time it's finished in seven years' time. These projects always do overrun. The cost overrun will be picked up by the taxpayer. In the meantime, Te Whatta is scaling back plans for the hospital, reducing both its floor space and the facilities inside. So is it worth thinking about a scenario like this for the future? The government wants a new hospital. It tells the construction industry what it wants in terms of space and design. The tenders go out and the government accepts the best tender for, say, $1.5 billion. The contractor builds the hospital and hands over the finished building to Te Order on completion. Then for the next 30 years, Te Order pays the contractor $60 million a year to lease the building. 
Over 30 years, Te Whatawara then pays out over 1.8 billion, and the builder gets an annual return of 4% on their investment. After 30 years, Te Whatawara takes over ownership of the building. Now, that is a very simplified, very unsophisticated plan. But isn't it worth looking at something like that? There is no major capital expenditure or borrowing needed by the government, and $60 million in an annual lease for a building is just 0.24% of the $25 billion annual health budget. The country gets a new hospital. Uh, after 30 years, it gets to own it without a major capital expenditure spend. So why does the government need to own hospital buildings? They can own the business that goes on inside, but why the need to have the infrastructure around it as well? After all, most government departments in Wellington pay commercial leases for their office space. What's the real difference between renting office space and leasing a hospital building? And after 30 years, you get to own the building anyway. Now, there would have to be far more sophisticated business plans done than what I've described, of course. But isn't the concept at least worth thinking about? It will save that upfront expense of $1.5 billion, all of which is borrowed anyway. Altex Machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Now, some great investigative work by the New Zealand Herald's Matt Nippets last year revealed that the Waipurera Trust, which is funded by the government through Whanau Order to provide health services to Māori in West Auckland, paid for political campaigns. The trust, you see, made interest-free loans to its CEO, John Tamahedi, to run unsuccessfully for the Mayor of Auckland's role in 2019, and then for Te Pāti Māori, of which Tamahedi is president, in the 2020 general election. The amount in question all up, with some also from the National Urban Māori Authority, or NUMA, of which Tamahedi is also the chief executive, was about half a million dollars. There's a major problem here. The Waipurera Trust and NUMA are both charities. They pay no tax. Charities are not allowed to be involved in politics. So the trust has agreed to stop contributing to Te Pāti Māori's election campaign and has said it will now try and claw back the $389,000 it advanced to Te Pāti Māori. Charities Services, which regulates the activities of charities, investigated the arrangements and concluded that they breached the Charities Act. The trust promised in February of this year in writing that they wouldn't provide any more money for any political activity. The manager of charity services gave the trust until Monday of this week, August the 7th, to show that the loans to Tamahedi and Te Patimari were being repaid. There is as yet no evidence reported that any repayment has happened. If Waipurera Trust doesn't get the money back from Tamahedi and Te Pāti Māori, it could lose its charity status with major tax implications. Then we see yesterday that the chair of the Charities Registration Board, which deals with matters regarding the status of charities, is chaired by a woman called Gwendolyn Keel, a lawyer who is the general counsel for Waikato Tainui and a Labour Party candidate in this year's election. 
See the obvious conflict here? The chair of a board which could remove Waiperera Trust's charity status after it donated money to Te Pati Māori is a candidate for Labour which could form a coalition with Te Pati Māori to form a government. And there is no indication that Ms Keel is standing aside as a Labour candidate or standing down from the charity's registration board. And then on top of all that... It's revealed that John Tumahedi has, as an individual, on July the 17th this year, donated a further $50,000 to Te Pati Māori for the election campaign. One can only wonder at the original source of those funds. Well, I talked earlier this afternoon about the way farmers are feeling at the moment because of the economic landscape. Now there's yet another obstacle being put in front of them, And there's outrage in South Canterbury over it, outrage which will surely spread to the rest of the country if it's followed through. This is the new designation under the Resource Management Act of Sites and Areas of Significance to Maui, SASM, SASMs. About 4,000 landowners are affected in South Canterbury. But get this, it seems nobody who lives in town is affected because if a SASM is identified on a property of under 750 square metres, which is most residential urban properties, there won't be a problem. So this is aimed fairly and squarely at farmers. If it is decided that at some stage in the distant past, as either written down or passed down through generations orally, there was an iwi activity, such as people living there or gathering food or fighting a battle, then the area could not have any change of farming activity on it. Basically, it means that if you want to change the land use from, say, cropping to grazing or shock horror to dairying, and you have to apply for resource consent to do it, then you may not be able to do what you'd like to do on your own land. The thing that's riled many farmers in South Canterbury is that in the past there had been reports that nothing of archaeological or Māori significance had been identified on a particular piece of land. For instance, a guy called Bruce Rogers on the Arundel-Rangatata Road, which is actually the road that I lived on when I was first born when my dad was the local school teacher. He said a new report contradicted what he had been told and had written down originally. Another farm inland from Tamuka had been in the same family for 150 years and they'd never heard of any Māori history on the site before. What's worse is that on some farms, the entire property has been identified as a sasm without identifying an actual site or activity on the farm. The Timaru District Council is ducking for cover here, saying they're just going through the statutory process, which is being driven, of course, by central government and the bureaucrats in Wellington. Now, these SASMs, these sites and areas of special significance to Māori, are on top of SNAs and ONLs that have already been imposed on farmers, uh, those being significant natural areas and outstanding natural landscapes, which means farmers are becoming severely restricted about what activity they can undertake on their own properties. No wonder the rural sector is hanging out for a change of government. ACT especially is very keen to restore more property rights to property owners. And frankly, it's not before time. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Thank you for your company this Friday afternoon here on Reality Check Radio. This has been the Peter Williams Afternoon Show. Enjoy your weekend. We will talk again on Monday. You've been listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio.
Remember, you can catch Pete's full show combining smooth sounds and candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis and the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on our live broadcasts 1pm Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays right here on RCR Reality Check Radio. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio slash members and join now.